This episode, I'm joined by Paul Bishop and Aaron French to discuss the overlap between the work of Friedrich Nietzsche and Rudolf Steiner, especially in relation to the spiritual and religious crisis of modernity. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast, gain access to some exclusive content, or just keep everything running, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So... Welcome to both Paul Bishop and Aaron French to uh, this episode on the work of Friedrich Nietzsche and Rudolf Steiner. Uh, but as we discussed, probably Goethe will probably definitely come in. Uh, so we have, you know, Paul Bishop, Nietzsche, Nietzsche scholar and Aaron French, uh, dare I say, a Rudolf Steiner scholar, if there can be such a thing as we move from that sort of academic domain into the Akashic records, all of a sudden the idea of scholarship becomes a bit murky. Um, but we're going to be discussing their relationship because uh, Steiner is one of the earlier people to write seriously on Nietzsche. He's also one of the last people to visit Nietzsche. And um, generally, there is this sort of strange overlap between the two. Um, so the dates we're sort of talking about, the overlap, of course, Friedrich Nietzsche is 1844 to 1900. And then Rudolf Steiner is 1861 to 1925. So these are the years that we're, that we're sort of overlapping and discussing here. And I think I'll begin with Two questions, beginning with Paul, then moving through to Aaron, sort of chronologically, which is, firstly, what is the, within Nietzsche's scholarship, is there much talk of, you know, Steiner's Nietzsche? And then in Steiner's scholarship for Aaron, you know, what is the talk of this Nietzsche thing? So beginning with Paul, and then we can just open up the discussion. Sure. Yeah. Thanks very much. Very good, very good question, James. Um, I, I think the answer is going to be not a lot. Um uh, and that uh, uh, the, the Rudolf Steiner is, is someone who is um, uh, right or wrongly, and I think um, you know, and Aaron will bear me out on this, um, who is who is in, in academic studies perceived as uh, perceived as marginal, and, uh, and and that carries on, I think, in the field of Nietzsche studies as well. Even though, um, arguably, Nietzsche himself gets ever more pushed to the to, to the periphery um, for one reason or another at the at, at the moment. Um, and I, I think that's I think that's a shame because um, what it does is to overlook the fact that that Steiner did have an important role in uh, in getting getting Nietzsche out there in uh, the early formative phase of Nietzsche reception. I think Steiner was an important figure. Um, I think it's worthwhile saying as well that um, uh, Steiner's writings on on Nietzsche. Um, or at least a couple of them are very much the early rather than the later Steiner. So um, maybe have a different set of uh, presuppositions that are that are there. Um, but um, as I say, I think the answer is there's very little interest that's shown by the Nietzsche scholarly community um, on what Steiner and indeed other people like Jung um, uh, make of uh, make of Nietzsche. So there's a lot more work to be done in that area, one might say. Mm-hmm. Aaron, is it, is this much the same with Steiner Steiner people? Mm, well, yeah, it's a bit different because like someone like Nietzsche, there was a tremendous amount of scholarship, I think, and now it's declining where there was never really a tremendous amount of scholarship on Steiner. It's only now starting to be mm, taken seriously, I guess, by some like historians and so forth, even though, of course, people in German wrote about him a lot. So there really isn't much on Steiner at all. And um, uh, I mean, there are like books one could go to if they were working on dissertation, but it's like, you know, 10 to 20 books, you know, in a total or something. But so within that, there is relatively little. 
uh, work on on uh, his ideas about Nietzsche. Of course, because he's there's so many things he did and was interested in, and it's, 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 there's so many ways you could approach it that that's not usually the one someone jumps to. Although it's quite an interesting uh, question, but uh, the, what I was just mentioning before we started recording, I do know that there is one book. I mean, there's more in German, obviously, and there is one book that came out which is basically considered to be like the main biggest study on this and um um the, the guy's name is the author's name is mark I'm, I'm blanking on his last name he's now the current head of the rudolf steiner archive in dornach and he did his habilitation on this uh on rudolf steiner's time when he worked at the nietzsche archive and all of the debates that went on then this kind of scandals and it's quite a complicated story there about how Steiner was like supposed to get the job, but then didn't get it. And he felt that he'd been sort of betrayed or there was like, this is also a kind of debate of like, did Steiner turn it down or did he get kind of uh, pushed out in, a, in some underhanded way? Um, and of course, the, there's a lot to that whole story. And I, I did not come at Steiner from the Nietzsche perspective either. So even I'm not uh, fully up on what exactly is the relationship between Nietzsche and Steiner. I think there does need to be more work on that. But in this book, at least, um, maybe I can send it to you after in the German, if you can read German, you can get a good account of, of this period because he went through all the letters and everything back and forth between uh the sister of Nietzsche, Steiner, and it was this other guy named Bernard Sufan, I think was his name. And he was like the boss at uh, the, the Goethe Schiller archive, but he also had some kind of connection to the Nietzsche archive at this time. And Nietzsche archive was just getting set up. So there was all kinds of strange uh, goings on in this time, right when Steiner was there, actually, in Weimar. Yeah, I guess, I guess I just sort of realized, I mean, we're dealing with the sort of hermetics example par excellence and historically of what happens when two groups, you know, the Nietzscheans, the academic scholarly Nietzscheans and the Steinerians and all this weird mixture of how far are we going to tread in one direction? Are we going to become scholarly with Steiner? Are we going to become Akashic record with Nietzsche? You know, so there's this, there's this peculiar overlap of, you know, and, and that thing that we can't really define of what is this line that we're talking about? Why won't, why are some people refusing to always tread? And, you know, what is it they don't want to let in? Um, but I guess, I guess one historical event to really pin down some sort of concreteness of, of, uh, what's going on here is really would be Steiner's somewhat infamous meeting with Nietzsche in his, in his dying days. I'm not sure how, Far after the meeting, it was uh, when Nietzsche passed away. But at this point, he was fairly gone, so to speak. But Aaron, you were telling me that there was some peculiarities around this meeting, and that and that actually that this uh, that this this bedroom became somewhat of a Nietzschean shrine, or is this or is this secret knowledge? Um, <laughs> it was secret knowledge in the uh, GDR time, but perhaps it's uh, now it can be let out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, I did just remember the name of the book. I'm sorry. I'll just say it. It's by David Mark Hoffman, and it's called uh, Das Basler Nietzsche Archive. I think that might not be the exact book. He'd done several things on Nietzsche, but his name is David Mark Hoffman. So he did. he's the one who's dealt the most. He's the only one, really, who's dealt with Nietzsche and Steiner. And he's also works at the Goethe Annam. So even there, he's a scholar for sure, but he's also sort of part of the scene there, you know. Uh, but 
Yeah, the Nietzsche, I think it's quite well known, Steiner's experience, and maybe to your audience and or people listening, I think people who sort of know this, who are into Nietzsche, this this thing Steiner says about seeing Nietzsche, because it's sort of fascinating. And um, so, yeah, but, but the thing about that that was new to me when I visited the, the Nietzsche house, there's two Nietzsche houses. There's one in Namburg, and then there's one in Weimar. Um the archive was originally in Nomburg, and this is where Steiner went and worked on the book, uh, uh, Fighter for Freedom, or Fighter, yeah, Fighter Against His Time. Uh, Nietzsche, Fighter for Freedom, or Fighter Against His Time, I can't remember the exact title, but it's, uh, it's interesting. When I went to Nomburg, they have now the house there, you can go visit it and so forth, and they have uh, like a wall with all Nietzsche scholarship and books, even like a little room where you can go sit in and read Nietzsche and so forth. And there actually were people in there like students or something reading, doing Nietzsche. And um, there were all these books about Nietzsche that I guess were in a certain sense, like the legacy of Nietzsche and they had Steiner's book there. So it it was interesting to me that it was represented there uh, in this collection of stuff that had come out from Nietzsche. Um, But it was this house where Steiner met Nietzsche. It was not the house in Weimar. Mm-hmm. So that's one little point of clarification, I think, from the last time I talked to you. So so first, his sister had Nietzsche in this house where he was he was sick after he had his experience, you know, with the horse and everything. And Steiner finally went there and met him and has this experience of seeing, uh, just in a nutshell, like basically like Nietzsche's soul kind of hovering outside of his body, you know? And Steiner says what he could see in this moment, this kind of visionary moment is... You know, and the body was like, you could see these pictures of Nietzsche toward the ends of his life, like this tortured body. But then, according to Steiner, this like the light of his spirit, his true spirit, you know, uncorrupted maybe by this sick part behind him. He doesn't really go much into what that means necessarily. And this is just a thing in his autobiography that he mentions. I mean, Steiner's autobiography is quite interesting. He met all kinds of famous people, actually, uh, from his life and um so this is his Nietzsche uh story but the, the interesting thing about that is that I can add is that then Nietzsche was moved to Weimar the Weimar house that um Henry van der, van der Velde built this uh modernist architect's beautiful house shrine to Nietzsche you know has the this n in a circle all over like a trademark it looks like superman but with n you know i don't know if this is deliberate i don't think there was no superman at the time but for me it looks like a superhero <laughs> Uh, thing, but in this room, it was where Nietzsche died. He was kept up in the in the um, in the room there, and was you know very sick. And it, what was interesting for me is, of course, people, followers of Steiner read this account, and it's a very big deal that Steiner says this, you know. But it, it turns out that this happened a lot. That a lot of people came pilgrimage to Nietzsche. And I don't have any exact examples, but uh, they also had some kind of experiences seeing him in this state. And that his sister like kind of kept him in there, you know, and then would let certain people up and sort of open the door and let them like go in and see the Nietzsche, you know, there and would have experiences of some kind. And then when he even when he died, there was like pilgrimages to this room that was called they called the death chamber. And they would hang things up, almost like votive offerings or something. There's interesting pictures about this you can still see. And um yeah, this went on for a long time. And then the Nazis tried to build another temple next to the house, a sort of Nazi-style temple to Nietzsche, which was never completed and is still there, just overgrown with, with weeds and so forth, next to the the beautiful uh, Art Nouveau house, which is which is still there and now and you can visit it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But in the GDR times, just to add this final part, they supposedly destroyed this room because this room had uh, uh, sort of taken on like a some kind of like spiritual, you know, glow or mm-hmm. essence uh, or something. It was something special about this room. And so the the Soviets thought that uh, they did they wanted to get rid of this room. Uh, it was apparently what you read when you go there is over fears that it would somehow reactivate this German <laughs> nationalist spirit or something if they left this room around and people could go in there and so forth. So Paul, I'm assuming Nietzsche scholars spend a lot of time sit around sitting around discussing the detachment of Nietzsche's soul flowing above his head. Is that a common occurrence? Yeah, I, I obviously didn't go to the right kind of conferences, do I? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, I mean it, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting story, and says uh, says maybe more about more about Steiner than it does it does about Nietzsche. Um, uh, perhaps another way to frame it is to is 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 to think about um, uh, you know the, the entire problem that was there right from the word go in terms of Nietzsche reception when you have the sister who's there um, pushing this line, um, uh, you know. Um, Inviting people round uh, for uh, for dinner, and um, uh, then uh, Nietzsche's wheeled out, or, or the door is open, and people go in and uh, and, and look at him. This this uh, objectifying of him in that in that way. So I think so I think that that's one problem. Uh, another problem is the whole tradition of that there is some sort of uh, cachet around madness, the the, the geistige Umnachtung, as um, as it's politely called. So going go, going into the spiritual dark spiritual night, you might say the geistige Umnachtung um, uh, as as a sort of you know g- going back to Hölderlin, the divine madness that's uh, that's seen in some way. Um, and I think that bedevils a lot of Nietzsche reception, or certainly did in the early years as, as well. Um, and I, I don't know whether Steiner actually attempted to um, uh, to cure uh, Nietzsche. And the reason why I say that is because there are accounts of uh, uh, dubious people like Julius Langbein, um, who, who wrote the infamous uh, uh, Rembrandt als Etzia, Rembrandt as an, an educator and uh, a, a bit of a right-wing thinker. But but Langbein um, has this project to try and cure uh, Nietzsche. And um, I think the same uh, applies to Alfred Schuller, who was uh, in the cosmic circle in Munich as, uh, Munich as well. Um, so there's a lot of, how should we say, Nietzsche tourism uh, uh, going uh, uh, going on, um, and and even though um, that's not going to be the kind of thing that Nietzsche scholars are going to be uh, are going to be talking about, it is one of the indications which which makes it difficult to find that discursive space. I think still today for Nietzsche in the in, in the academy outside of the scholarly circles that are, the scholarly circles that are there. So it's okay for them, but it's it's, it's how do we get Nietzsche more widely uh, appreciated within the scholarly community? That that's maybe not quite so easy today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So we've we've dealt with the the infamous history in a way, and I'm sure we'll draw more in. But I guess to to throw in uh, a big question of just to draw in really the the thought of both thinkers. Do you do do I guess do either of you, either of you immediately comes to mind if I ask the question if we were to say Steiner and Nietzsche is there this common philosophical or theoretical thread which you go. That's where they're both drawing on. I mean, of course, the book Fighter for Freedom is freedom the is freedom in that metaphysical, spiritual sense. Both of them drawing from Kant and Goethe. Is freedom really what they're both? We could say the the the, the kernel that they're both revolving around, where we can begin to draw them together as as actual thinkers. Who's going to go first? <laughs> yeah, I would like to hear maybe Paul's what Paul would say about this, and I could go. 
and then 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 you can tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> I'd, I'd be I'd be grateful if you did. Um, well, I, I think again, it's a, it, it's a super important question because um, for me, in many ways, it highlights uh, what seemed to me the the differences between 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 Nietzsche and, and Steiner as far as that that concept of of, of freedom is is concerned. Um, uh, you're absolutely right that they come out of this tradition that both are, are um, thinking on, reacting to, engaging with what the thinkers that have come before them, like uh, like Goethe. Uh, I think we will have to say something about him um, uh, and Cantor's uh, as well. Um, but I would see them as then actually doing something really very, very different with them. Um, as far as Nietzsche is concerned, he is going to be, well, he has an interesting view of, uh, of, of, of Goethe, um, heavily reliant on him in certain respects, more critical in others, particularly um, when in Twilight of the Idols, he says that Goethe didn't understand the Dionysian mysteries. So, so th- there's a limit on his appreciation of Goethe there. But certainly as far as Kant is concerned, because I think uh, Nietzsche would, uh, could accurately be described as, as resolutely anti-Kantian, he's got a campaign against uh, against Kant um, because he has um, continued in the modern world this bifurcation of the cosmos um, into ph- phenomenon and noumenon, and he sees this as terribly, terribly dangerous. It's kind of another form of dualism, Platonic dualism, which goes on, and and then brought into the sphere not just of metaphysics but of morals as well. And there, of course, Nietzsche's objection is very succinct. He thinks that. Um, uh, as well as having the metaphysics uh, of the hangman, uh, he thinks that ni- ni- the Kantian morality is simply cruel. So, so we've got we've got a campaign that's going on uh, very much with uh, against Kant. I think probably against Hegel as well. And and the freedom that uh, Nietzsche is talking about. I think of this wonderful line that's there in the three metamorphoses section of of Thusbeck's Zarathustra, when uh, he talks about, well, what's the the function of the line in those three sequences of, um, uh, that sequence of of three metamorphoses of the spirit. And the line, he says, is there because it's going to sich Freiheit schaffen, so to create this this freedom for for oneself. And it seems to be very important that freedom is not granted, it's going to have to be created. Um, both in an existential as well as possibly as well in more collective senses. And that's why Nietzsche is attractive to early feminists and, um, and other political thinkers as well, not an, on the left and, and not just on, on the right. As I understand Steiner, and again, I'm willing to be, to be corrected on this, um, and he would see himself much more, um, aligned with Goethe and, and Kant. And, but then the question is, well, d- is Steiner's understanding of Goethe and Kant, how reasonable is that or how defensible is that uh, as, as, a, as, a reading, as a reading of them? Um, and again, I'd be, be interested to explore um, uh, how, how Steiner actually deals with um, uh, figures like Kant. Um, and therefore, uh, for Steiner, that freedom is, is there and, and is available. You just have to hook into it into some, in, into some way. Um, it's like the, the Akashic Chronicle. You've got to find a means of accessing it in some way. So that freedom is there, that spiritual realm is there, and you've just got to access it. For Nietzsche, as I would see him, there isn't that spiritual realm. And what you're going to have to do is to fight to create freedom for yourself in, uh, in, in the most profound existential sense at the moment. That's the way I'd see it stacking up at any rate. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And part of the reason why I wanted to, to hear what you thought about that is I know I, I did my dissertation on Steiner, but I and I know about his work on Nietzsche, but I don't know enough about Nietzsche. Of course, when I read Steiner, I had to read more Steiner, obviously, than Nietzsche and Goethe to do this work. But you can tell that Steiner 
because he worked in the archives, both in the Goethe Schiller archive, he also worked on Schopenhauer editions. Like you can tell he really understands this stuff. And there's like a couple later in life, he has some things where I found where in his lectures where he talks about being in the Nietzsche archive and finding there's one funny uh, story where he says he found that Nietzsche um, was responding to Eugen During in -hmm. terms of uh, the the eternal recurrence and that he sort of says he thinks Nietzsche got it from uh, trying to argue against him, something like this. So just that little detail makes me think Steiner knew what he was talking about. But there's a a difficulty here because this is something I also had to deal with, that there is, in a certain sense, two Steiners. There's like a pre-1900 Steiner and a post-1900 Steiner. uh, Followers of Steiner, anthroposophists, as they're called, try to sort of show a continuity. Scholars such as uh, Helmut Zander, for instance, is sort of the main uh, European scholar who's worked on Steiner from a religious studies perspective, tries to show a kind of... uh, a two, like a break here of some kind. And there's various ways you could uh, interpret this breaking point of 1900. It's when Steiner joins the Theosophical Society. So if, but, and I'm not sure where I stand on this, but prior to 1900, it seems to me also, though, that Steiner seems to be more in line with agreeing with Nietzsche on this freedom thing, uh, especially in terms of the need to create, uh, to create maybe not so much values, but to create this freedom of thought out of yourself. And the reason why I think that he is a little bit more aligned in some ways, he's much more critical later, I think, is, and this is actually what I wanted to ask you about, because I don't know how much uh, information there is about this. But so Steiner wrote his book, The Philosophy of Freedom. At this time when he was in Weimar, and, uh, you know, working at thinking about Goethe, responding to the way they treated Goethe in the archive. He also didn't like their approach to, to Goethe. He said it was sort of like a museum of Goetheanism, you know. <laughs> he wanted these things to be alive somehow, to be doing something, these concepts. And the same thing about Nietzsche. He critiques uh, uh, Nietzsche's sister a lot later. At, at first, he, you know, says in nice things about her, of course, when he's trying to get the job. But later, he's especially after she... Uh, is publishing some of his work. He's very critical and says that she has no understanding of what, of Nietzsche. And in his book, uh, Fighter for Freedom, he talks about um, Max Stirner, this kind of a more, very strong sort of anarchistic uh, impulse to freedom. I mean, Stirner's book was called uh, Der Einzige in Sein Eigentum. So it's like the property, ego is your own property. And even though Steiner, it is like, this is the debate, like the followers of Steiner would want to say all of these spiritual concepts were there with Steiner at this time, whereas a scholar would has more scholarly approach, or at least a more critical approach, to put it this way, say they were not really there. They came when he joined theosophy to a larger extent. Um, so this is why it's a bit of a difficult uh, problem. But so, so he is thinking, at least to some extent, he is thinking about Kant. He is very critical of Kant. I mean, he read Kant from when he was younger, but it, in his uh, first book that he wrote, he starts it off saying, we must end this Kantian dualism. Like, my whole life's mission is basically this. <laughs> and he wants to get into this un- this unknown realm of the noumenal. He doesn't want to just follow it out of duty, he says. He wants to be able to perceive in there and think in there and to create in there. And I tried to argue that's what he's doing. Um 
later in his life, you know, that he's, uh, this is his mission and he's doing it. And then you happen to, he has a bunch of followers with him on this because then you're entering into sort of religion land or something. Uh, but the, the note, when he writes Philosophy of Freedom, he's thinking about, uh, Sterner and Benjamin Tucker is another one. He's, he's friends with these uh, anarchist people and reading their writings. And he's thinking about Nietzsche in this way. He says in his book, Fighter of Freedom, that Sterner was the most free thinker uh, b- before Nietzsche and did it better, basically. But Nietzsche is the same. But that what Nietzsche's Ubermensch is, is this free uh person who has who has created their own freedom of their basically their own ego, you know, in their own way of thinking. But this Sterner, of course, was criticized at the time for being for this. This anarchism thing was a huge fear at the time. And I know you know about this, too, because I was very grateful to your your scholarship when I was doing my dissertation, because people like Clogus and the, the Cosmic School and all of these people are not really written about much in English, you know, so there was a whole mm, uh, like Otto Gross is another one. There's a whole like a uh, scene <laughs> about this anarchism yeah. thing. And Steiner was actually in plugged into this and people have criticized him of this. And now, you know, he talks about philosophy of freedom or you read about his ethical individualism, but he, he calls it himself in some of the early editions of philosophy of freedom. Individualist anarchism is his project. So in that sense, I'm curious to maybe how you would respond. Because I don't know Nietzsche well enough. Is is individualist uh, individualist anarchy anarchism also a Nietzschean project, or is it not exactly the same thing? Well, um, I think it was Karl Jaspers who said, um, uh, "For every statement you can find in Nietzsche, you can find a sort of equal and opposite opposing sort of statement." And um, I think anarchist individualism would would certainly be one reading. And that you could find uh, support in, uh, in in Nietzsche's texts for that for a whole variety of positions, and of course, and that's one of the reasons why he he has has been such a seminal thinker is because he was able to fire people um, uh, who were interested in individual reform, collective reform on the right, on on the left. This is this is the extraordinary potency of uh, of, of Nietzsche's thought. Um, uh, someone who writes about the death of God and and who yet is very very actively received in theological circles as, as as well and 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 continuing to this day so that that i think makes that that's Nietzsche's speciality as it were is is, is being able to fire people to inspire them in all di- in, in, in all directions um uh, go back to the question of um his uh Stein's reception of reception of Kant. Yeah, yeah you're quite right that he says we've got to overcome this dualism but i think that steiner would be wanting to overcome that dualism in a way which is and I think again, you're right. Reflects uh, his his engagement with, uh, uh, with with Madame Blavatsky rather than with German with German idealism. Because as I would see Nietzsche, Nietzsche is uh, is wanting to get rid of that dualism because because he he just doesn't believe in this dualistic approach. He thinks no, we've we've lyingly added. He says this numinal realm. We've the backwoodsmen have have invented this fantasy, um, uh, which has uh, has come out of. Um, uh, Judeo-Christianity, um, and it's a profound mistake, and it's um, uh, invidious, and it's um, uh, dangerous for life. It stops us living properly, and we've got and we've got to get rid of it. Um, and so that's his project. It seems that that Steiner is um, anti-Kantian in a completely different way, because because he accepts the difference between phenomenal and the and the noumenal, but then goes on to say, "Well, I can tell you something about this noumenal realm, and we get in there, which is the one thing, according to Kant, you can't do. That's what makes it noumenal is that you're not is that you're not going to be able to get in there." 
it's not a philosophical question then it may be it may be a religious one or even then if one looks at Kant's uh, ideas of religion within the bounds of pure reason is a very curious kind of religion it's probably it's certainly not um, uh, a religion as it's uh, as it's traditionally been uh, been conceived of so it, it seems to me that there is something profoundly I hesitate to say the word wrong but but I find it hard to follow Steiner when he um, uh, sets about his reading of Kant and then proceeds to say, well, in fact, we can uh, know something about this noumenal realm, isn't, isn't that just a misreading of what Kant and the critical philosophy is trying to do? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a big question that I cannot do justice to, I don't think. One thing I could say about it, though, is this is also the difficulty, is that he's not really talking about anything but from Blavatsky till after 1900, you know, so in this period where he says this stuff about Nietzsche, he's thinking he's, of course, worked with Schopenhauer and and, and he's also he's, he's produced a, a sort of edited volume or uh, yeah, like an edited volume of this. But he he's mostly arguing against both Kant, uh, well, against this Kantian uh, not being able to know the thing in itself through using Goethe. And I think that this is actually even more. um I don't know if mysterious is the word, but more difficult because it, it's his own understanding of Goethe. As it's his own understanding of Nietzsche, to some extent, it's his own interpretation of Goethe. It was not the interpretation of Goethe that he found when he went to the Goethe-Schiller archives because they had the idea that Goethe was a great literary figure and he had this natural science thing, which was poetic, artistic, not really science. Therefore, it's sort of an oddity and we're going to focus on the literary stuff. And Steiner's idea was um, almost the opposite. Of course, he appreciated the literary stuff, but he wanted to see the scientific concepts, scientific, that Goethe developed as Goethean science put into practice. He thought that somehow this is the way around Kant. And again, I don't know it. I didn't read, I haven't read his early writings well enough to know exactly how he argues uh, for that. I mean, part of what he tries to say is things like um, these sort of archetypal forms that Goethe comes up with that Goethe says, um, if you study nature in this sort of, um, you know, you bring yourself into nature and you study the plant, uh, uh, you, you meditate on the plant that you can come to a sort of relationship with the plant in a, in a, in a it's basically like a proto-phenomenological kind of approach to science in a certain sense. And through this process, Goethe um, developed his theory of forms and morphology and so forth. And again, I don't know exactly how he argues it. And I don't think he necessarily argued it um, in a way that convinced everyone, because it's partly why we he's still sort of a minor figure in some ways in these fields. But he tried to use these ideas of Goethe to argue uh, against Kant at first. He then comes to theosophy and then goes much more in, in a, this direct, much more in a direction where um, he's now fleshing out this realm, whatever it is out there. But in the, but in this time around Nietzsche, he's still sort of using Goethe. He's using this anarchism thing, and in his philosophy of freedom, you know, he goes a lot into this whole notion about thinking that somehow uh, the the thinking of the percept and the concept that this bridge. Maybe you've, you've read some of this that the bridge between these two uh, these two what do we call them? things, I guess, the, the, the percept of the concept and the concept that form that the bridge of the formation of the concept and one thinks it, the activity in between the two is the important point. And it's this uh, sort of middle zone where 
for him at least, it's it's you're sort of um, able to sort of pop out of what he calls like you know uh, sensible thinking. He he somehow thinks you can get to a sort of sense-free thinking at this phase, mostly. And the sense-free thinking is then uh, mm, overcoming. Do then you can know things of the numeral rather numinal realm rather than what he says. His interpretation of Kant is Kant says you can never know. Just do it because you're supposed to, you're told to from laws or something. He says, we don't have laws. Uh, we can actually somehow think in this world and perceive in it. Um, but of course, uh, yeah, so that maybe I'll stop there. But that's a little bit of background of, of why, of where he was trying to approach it, at least in this early phase. So, I, I mean, I, I agree with you um, that the, I, I suppose I'd say the, the early work of Stein is, is, in some in some respects is going to it's going to be where one would have the the greatest opportunities for scholarly discussion because he's he's doing editorial work uh, on, on Goethe's scientific writings. I think you're absolutely right that um, he's he's part of a a uh, rediscovery or or, or um, a, a, re, a renewed appreciation of that aspect of, of of Goethe's work, which has tend to be which has tended to be neglected. Of course, it's given them rise um, in its turn to. Um, the idea of Goethean science and people like Henry Bortoff. So that there's a body of work that's come has come out of that, um, and I appreciated well that um, uh, Steiner is an important part of this, uh, this, this this critique of the way that Goethe is presented um, in uh, you know, bourgeois academic circles, which are uh, very so uh, also very slowly and subtly, but in fact killing him. I mean, I think think you know it's killing the interest in Goethe, and that's one of the things which. Um, I think it's most memorably expressed by that um, that episode in um, uh, Hermann Hesse's um, uh, Damien when he when he goes to the the house of the uh, the Germanistic uh, professor and he sees this Goethe model on the uh, bust on the on the mantel place and he gets very very worked up indeed it's Steppenwolf actually it's not Damien it's in the Steppenwolf that he that he that he has this this moment where he's absolutely infuriated by it because it's this bourgeois appropriation this taming this making safe of a figure who is going to be for the Steppenwolf so much more existentially uh, important. Important. Uh, and it's going to be Goethe and Mozart laughing and, and this rediscovery of what it means to be alive. And that's not there in the, the bourgeois uh, little statue of Goethe, which is on the which is on the professor's mantelpiece. So I think he's got an important role there as, as well. But it looks as if we're saying that it's when he then becomes interested in, in theosophy uh, and, and then starts to rework it in terms of anthroposophy. I wonder, would it be fair to say that he then himself takes a more instrumental view of figures like uh, Goethe and Kant and, and, and Nietzsche, which was where we, which was where we started, and what he's doing with them um, is uh, maybe very interesting and valuable if one commits to to Steiner's outlook. But but he is actually mis he's he's appropriating them, misappropriating them, if one was going to be critical for his own argumentational ends. Would that be fair? Yeah, and of course, that's certainly the perspective of like Goethe scholars. So, like, you won't find, even though Steiner did all of this work at the beginning here, <clears throat> when Goethe's idea of science was first starting to maybe be taken some in some kind of way seriously, he was there uh, suggesting this and you know pushing for it. And you can see his little uh, he, when he was editing through Goethe's scientific writings, there are notes in there in the archive from Steiner that he wrote, you know, it's quite interesting to to look at it. But if you read like books that are books nowadays that are trying to take Goethean science seriously, they will have a footnote to Steiner about Steiner usually. And it'll be something like this, that he 
he sort of presents an overly mystical uh, kind of interpretation of Goethe that even Goethe didn't uh, <laughs> didn't really. This wasn't even really what he thought was, you know. And I, I think that that's true, actually. I mean, I, I, I do agree with that. Uh, for me, it's not a reason to discount it, but I understand why it is. What I tried to argue in my dissertation to maybe just have a different uh, perspective on this whole thing, and that's why I compared him to Max Weber, because they were both uh, around the same time, to sort of look at what did Steiner say he was doing and think he was doing, let alone maybe how he acted and how his followers perceived him and acted. I I think he thought he was doing this um, creation of of a sort of new Weltanschauung out of himself. Uh, for the future, for for this um, is just sort of revitalization of, of all elements of culture from this bottom position, which I think he agreed with about Nietzsche that they that we had arrived at the sort of poverty of all knowledge or something, or poverty of science and so forth. That out of that, an entirely new, um, entirely an entirely new Weltanschauung, an entirely new set of values, an entirely new set of practices and cultural norms. All of this had to be. Um, not done by following the laws of the church or something else, but had to be produced out of oneself. So I think he think he I think he thinks he's doing that to some extent. That's my sort of reading of it. And why I thought that that could be valuable to think about is because I compared him with Weber, who said the same thing, but never then did anything different. He kind of stopped with saying, and this is actually Steiner's critique of Nietzsche, stopped with saying, we're at the end here. We're at, uh, we've reached the, the abyss. <laughs> Nihilism is the next step. Mm, see ya. And so it's in that silence that Steiner says, oh no, here's what we do. We look into the Akashic record. We meditate. We do alchemy <laughs> schooling. We do alchemy. You know, he said, sort of, he suddenly shows all of these things that he says are the, the way forward. Doesn't mean they're right. I tried to argue, but I think he thinks he's doing what is, what is needed in the next step. Following in this kind of same tradition and agreeing in that sense that um, we sort of reached the end of uh, philosophy in a certain sense, you know, something like that. The end of the end of um, the end of uh, intellectual <laughs> development or however Nietzsche, we want to think about it in a sort of Nietzschean terms. Well, I, uh, I think it's certainly true that one can one can uh, look at a thinker and say, well, I mean, one needs to be differentiated. One can say, well, this is where he's he's he's, he's correct in his understanding, or the, or there's evidence to support this understanding. It's a reasonable understanding. There are other areas where it doesn't um, uh, it, it, it doesn't work quite so quite so well, to put it uh, to put it mildly. Um, and I think that's one of the problems that the academy has not been sufficiently differentiated in its approach to Stein. It's always very quick to point out that he gets this wrong. He does that, making accusations uh, about um, aspects of theories uh, relating to, to race, anti-Semitism, and, uh, and 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 so on, um, and, and and that as a result, one's lost the sense of you know, why Steiner was so important at the time. Partly in getting discussion about these figures out there. I mean, I, I think anybody must be. Uh, Hugely impressed by the immense lecturing activity that uh, that Steiner does, uh, and all over the show. I mean, there's a sort of perpetual roadshow as he as he goes around, and not just to uh, uh, to bourgeois audiences, but also to working class audiences as as well. And this seemed to me quite remarkable that you can have a 
um, that you can create a genuinely popular intellectual culture where people come out of the factories or up out of the mines and uh, instead of wanting to go down to the pub, they say, no, let's go and listen to Rudolf Steiner talking about Kant this evening. That is, that is really quite remarkable in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, the ability of, the, of, of him to, to have impact, as I suppose they would say in academic circles today, um, for him to have this outreach uh, to popular audiences of that, that kind. And of course, he, re- he recycles a lot of the material you know why not who doesn't that seems that seems fair the point is that he does have those audiences that are that are there and again it's a bit like in that respect it's a bit like Ludwig Clark's that these people are operating outside of the academic framework and perhaps that's something that the academics will never forgive them for is for for trying to kind of circumvent uh, the lecture hall in which uh, which is controlled by the uh, by by the institution um, at, at the same time, I suppose one of the dividends that I would that I would say is someone who is you know interested in Steiner, open minded, and wanting to want to learn more about it and, and so on, is that the Steiner community itself is maybe not um, how should we say as keen on public engagement as one would want it as one would want it to have to be in terms of going out and, and explaining um, and 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 being open for you know for for friendly criticism of um, you know. Uh, of, of of what Steiner is doing, you know, do you think that there's something? Is that a fair criticism to make of the way that that Steinerians or anthroposophists have dealt with the work of their master? Yeah, absolutely, and you know that's also part of the reason I went into academia to try to study it because I wanted uh, to get do something different about it and to try to get a different uh, approach, different perspective. Like even so, Steiner says that there's one example. Steiner says this, but also um, I'm just realizing we're maybe getting away from Nietzsche. So here's my. La- it's not about Nietzsche this example, but this is my last. Uh, it, it relates to at least Steiner's uh, reception. He said he himself was doing a new form of science. You know, this is another thing all these people were on about. Perhaps Nietzsche too, if I'm right. But maybe you could uh, correct me on that. But the, how can one develop a new form of science? Weber and these other neo-Kantians also were trying to do this thing. Steiner was also doing it. For him, in his in his little world, Steiner says he did do it. Here it is. It's this anthroposophy thing. It's real science. And then, of course, all of his followers take it up and they say, okay, yes, it's science. But, of course, to scientists, it's pseudoscience. <laughs> so you then sort of end up in this debate between, well, what is science? And, two, and the sort of authorized science and pseudoscience arguing, especially here in Europe with the homeopathy and so forth. So I think there are sort of entrenched roads here from this whole thing. So for me, this wasn't really important. So I don't care whether it's a science or not. I mean, I'm at the point now we're in the post-truth world. Do I believe in that there is a science come down from God that uh, we know? So it doesn't matter to me whether it's a science or not. Uh, what was more interesting to me was the experience, you know, the, what he did, why, sort of learning about the, the 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 history a little bit more. So I tried to think about him more in the terms of like uh, in my dissertation, I wrote about him as a sort of visionary uh, mystic, a visionary, um, yeah, yeah, storyteller, myth teller, something like that. Of course, that's not what he necessarily said about himself. Although there's some phrases where he says, "I'm not teaching people; I'm just telling you my experience," you know. Um, but. But I think, oh, to go back to the final point on that, I think that that is definitely part of the problem. The problem is from two sides. It's not from one side, you know, and it's this one side wanting to insist maybe like to take this seriously as a science and another side, maybe the academic side saying, well, this is a pseudoscience. Like you expect me to sort of believe that we can, or like, how am I going to even prove these sorts of statements? What kind of, what kind of activity is this even? Is this just silly to even go to be doing this? So the thing just sort of gets thrown out, you know, or something like that. 
Yeah, um, uh, yeah. No, I think that's. I think I think that's very common that there that there needs to be um, a rapprochement from both both sides on uh, on that. But I, I I wonder if there's been something something of a missed opportunity to you know, precisely around something. Uh, um, I'm not to say something about Nietzsche too, but 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 also but also about Goethe. Uh, the, the the critique that um, that Goethe makes um, of intellectual developments in his uh, in his day, and one one uh, one could see. Goethe is being very far-sighted in, in seeing the way that things are going to go. I think that same far-sightedness applies to Nietzsche as well. Perhaps, perhaps that's what sends him mad in the end. Uh, if you can see that there are certain tendencies in the way that, that science is being practiced um, uh, in his in his day. But but what Goethe does is to say, um, what I want, and he, he picks up on his, he has this thought where he talks about um, uh, Heinholz and anthropology as describing his own Goethe's thought as being ein gegenständliches Denken, an objective thought. So objective in the sense of it's related to an object. It's not objectivist, it's gegenständlich. It, in other words, it's to do with objects, it's to do with things, it, it's to do with the physical world. Um, and that therefore, Part of the the experience is it's both contemplative, meditative, but it's also hands-on. It's engagement with the world. It, it's appreciation of that material aspect. And maybe nowadays, with um, you know the, the the idea of virtual reality becoming more and more powerful, maybe that that you know this really is an idea that's come. But to me, then Steiner doesn't take that approach. Instead, he wants to say, well, it's uh, it, it's objective in the sense of what well, it's my objectivity. It, it's my truth, I suppose, uh, Steiner, uh, Steiner would say. But but that seems to me as a problem, or at least as a problem, uh, in as much as I wonder how far it's accurately reflecting what's really important about, about Goethe. And one of the things that seems to me, therefore, is, is such a shame is that we've, we've got Steiner here popularizing uh, Goethe and popularizing Goethean science um, in, in, in the way that Goethe himself proposes it. But maybe what is so important there, this gegenständliches Denken, this objective thought, this, this insistence on the materiality and the way that we are shaped by our own materiality as well, that, that point's gone missing because we, we disappear off to the spirit realm all too quickly and that creates a problem. Yeah, that's a good point, you know, and um, he, in his writings, he does try to follow this line, at least rhetorically. I mean, he he says himself that with Goethe, to stay with Goethe, to stay with the materiality. He never says to leave the materiality. In fact, he says quite clearly, this, the material world is the spiritual world turned inside out. Therefore, you must stay with the material world. You can't leave the material world. And why is he saying that? I imagine what, what the way you just described is probably something that he's at least thinking about her has come up with, you know? Um, so he, he says the, he, this is what he says, but of course, putting something like that into practice. And then especially, you know, as this thing develops through the two world, the first world war he lived through, at least, I mean, things get quite messy <laughs> all over the place. And so whether or not, um, that kind of um, approach remains throughout, you know, I'm not really sure, but at least in the beginning, in these early years, he, um, that it seems to be what he's trying to go with. Something about uh, the material world is actually the um, the way to sort of get into this the spiritual, this sort of geist. Uh, and and, the, and then this is where, like a more phenomenological uh, phenomenological idea. I guess to bring it back to Nietzsche, I mean, what you were saying earlier then is so one ways we can think they're different. And I think this is true that in Steiner's idea, he's he, he's disagreeing with Kant on this noumenal realm thing that we we can access this world we can form the way he puts it new organs of perception 
which are gedank, you know, uh, thinking, dank, gedanken, uh, organs of thinking. Uh, but, and then we can, you know, have some kind of intuition that, uh, in this other world. But for Nietzsche, if this is, if I'm understanding right, for in his mind, the whole notion of this noumenal world, um, is, uh, there is no, there is no noumenal world, A, but their whole notion of the noumenal world is a, is a, is a fraud. And so what then is this where we come to this sort of nihilism thing? Because it's a fraud, what then is there? Um, it's, it, it's one of the things that can lead to, uh, that can lead to nihilism. I think that, that, I think that Dieter would say is that the belief in the dualistic belief is itself already nihilistic. Because, because in it, it, it devalues the material world against the supposed other, um, spiritual, spiritual realm. So I think that one of the forms that nihilism that, uh, that Dietrich would identify would, would precisely be in his, in his, uh, understanding of, of Judeo-Christianity as, as really as a kind of acceptable form of, uh, of nihilism and a nihilism that's become institutionalized and, um, and, and dangerous to life. It's, uh, it, it, it ruins, it ruins lives and it, and it, it takes Away from from life, it, it's um, uh, it, it's materialistic, vitalistic uh, qualities as as well, um, because everything is going to be subordinated to this other realm, which on Nietzsche's account uh, uh, isn't isn't there. That's one form of nihilism. Another form of nihilism then comes in in saying, well. Um, uh, we're going to devalue the material world as uh, as as well, or we're going to um, uh, we're going to um, uh, simply negate uh, what is what is around us. We're going to devalue the values. That's the nihilistic bit, rather than creating the new values, which is so much harder. That's what we and that's what we need the freedom for. Going back to the three metamorphoses, that's what we need to have the line for is to is to create the space for freedom. Uh, to create the space for the freedom for the creation of values, but he says that's not enough. Um, after our camel has become a lion, and the lion has created this space, this freedom. Then we need to have this this creation of values. That's why the third emblem of the child is is introduced because it's through this this play, this creativity, this um, not a discovery of values, but it's going to be a creation of them. Again, that seems to me a difference between the way that, that Stein thinks about things, the way that Nietzsche thinks about things. Nietzsche's going to say these new values are going to have to be uh, created and, and only out of ourselves and maybe only out of the self, which is what the Ubermensch is, this, this, whatever that looks like. Of course, in Twilight of the Idols, it looks as if one of the models for the Ubermensch is, in fact, going to be Goethe, interestingly, interestingly enough. And his this vitalistic concept that he has of pre- presenting Goethe as, as he puts it, the the antipodes, the, the very opposite of uh, of, of Kant. Um, whereas with Steiner, as I as I understand Steiner, then um, because there is that spiritual realm there, and because there are the Akasha Chronicles, and because there is th- this access to the numeral realm, therefore that seems to be profoundly unnichean. I want to ask actually what uh, James uh, also a comment on, uh, on some. What do you think about this? Um... Uh, it's 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 all I, I the main thing I was thinking is it's a peculiar in a way that you have these two paths which in a way stay parallel for some time. So you know Steiner at fourteen years of age is hiding a copy of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason behind his coursework. I mean that's absolutely precocious. Nietzsche at a young age is, uh, as I remember, if I'm remembering rightly keeps his feet in freezing cold water at night so he can stay up late 
likely to read Critique of Pure Reason at that point in his life. So, but for both of these thinkers, there is this understanding that Kant is of seminal importance. Um, but it seems obviously at one point Nietzsche is, you know, to do with a complete denial, but oddly from a Schopenhauerian position. So he's moving from Schopenhauer's, you know, he calls Schopenhauer the master because he at least he at least accepted. Uh, I guess the difference there would be Schopenhauer just said there may be this thing called the noumenal, but we can never have access to it. So there you go, deal with that and go be miserable or whatever. It's all to do with the will. Um, but Nietzsche is then just denying it. Steiner, on the other hand, at tw- I think at twenty four, he completes Kant's you know the system of German idealism, which is you know I'm now twenty eight. It's a bit upsetting that at twenty four he completed it, but there you go. But it seems that oddly that they are still on the same path with respect to what Nietzsche would consider the death of God, right? So there has been something that has happened which is which has uh, made made it possible to actually even be be having these discussions altogether. So they're in agreement that something has died, which allows a common objective values to to promulgate throughout society and they're both dealing with their own way but Nietzsche seems to be dealing with it in like an entropic sense of let's just take it right down to the bottom and then see what happens whereas Steiner's like okay we've still got the divine but we can't have the old Judeo-Christian traditional divine so let's just explode it into this Akashic insane thing so that but it does, you know, they're, they're, it just it's peculiar that there's clearly a reason that they both can be in dialogue despite this difference. But it's almost like they're dealing with the same question, but both going at it at different extremes, but ending up. I mean, this is the question I want to ask is they still have this teleology of freedom, but they, and they still still seem to end up in the same place of overcoming, uh, individual overcoming, despite the fact that Nietzsche's denying the noumenal and... Steiner is converting it into this, you know, I don't even want to go there because it's, you know, it's all over the place, right? Steiner's, Steiner's notion of the divine is peculiar. Yeah, and maybe if I could just add one thing, thank you for, for, um, for your thoughts on that, helping me also move a little bit forward and how I'm thinking about this. What he says then, it is a religious thing. Like in one sense, we can say one of these, one person is more religious at some than than the other and so i mean it's when i tried to do weber and uh steiner there was some similarities in this too that the people seem they both seem to be thinking same thing similar things having the same questions coming to similar conclusions but like very different lives very different um um presentations and so forth um, so, so religion might be one way uh, we could think about it, because, of course, what Steiner says then when he arrives, let's say, at the same place as Nietzsche, he then says we need occultism. And this happens after his uh, encounter with theosophy. I think it's important to remember how radical theosophy was, you know, at this time. I mean, this was a religion or this was a movement that claimed to be able to harmonize religion and science. And this was the whole problem, you know what I mean, that they were all dealing with. So we could say that perhaps he overenthusiastically embraced this uh <laughs> This the this project of it wasn't just the Theosophist Crowley. All the occultists at this time claimed something to be able to harmonize this religion and science problem. Somehow bring these two things together. And of course, this is the problem they all seem to be driving themselves crazy about, especially in Europe uh, at this time. So um, this so this is something like a religion. Like he is he saying we're replacing you know anthroposophy, but he also just calls it occultism. He says like pure occultism. He tries to talk about it, which is what is occultism? It's just like yeah, like bl- blend. You know what you said, blend of Eastern and Christianity 
and meditation and psychic stuff, you're blending this stuff all together. And he says that this, like, like a, some kind of true expression of this, which he also claims is to be scientific, this is like the road forward out of the mess, at least for him. And maybe I can just say one more thing before we turn it over t- uh, to Paul, because it, just to stick with what Steiner says about this whole thing, according to him, at least, is Superman, why he, he like agrees with Nietzsche up to a point that the that this sort of Superman concept, Ubermensch, is like the road forward in some way. But he then says that for Nietzsche, it's he was sort of trapped. I brought some quotes. I'm not going to read them all, but I, I gathered a few quotes to try to make sense of this myself. And in some of many of them, he says something like, "Yes, this uh, this this Ubermensch is the road forward." Um, but Nietzsche stuck in is stuck in his intellectual um, sort of climate. You know, and can't, uh, and so he just produces a sort of abstract, this is Steiner speaking, I have the quote here, a sort of abstract, uh, vague uh, idea about this Ubermensch. He sees it, he lives it within himself and experiences it, but he, and he gives the concept, but he doesn't, uh, but that's it. He doesn't give the sort of like, um, I don't know if the, the methods and the practices is the right word, but something like that. Like he doesn't give the next scene in the novel. And so at least in Steiner's own uh, argument, you know, his own rhetoric, this is what he's claiming to do. And I think he would also say he's creating it, you know, out of himself. But then as soon as you link it to this theosophy stuff, it is true when you say something like the Akashic Record, you're then attempting also to link it to some kind of universal truth, right? Uh, so you're, yeah, it's a quite a contradictory, uh, kind of problematic tension trying to ma- entertain that position, you know? Well, that, that, uh, that, a lot of points there to pick up on just uh, just to take three of them maybe um I, i'm glad you used the word occultism first probably but that now now it's been now it's been used to, to like a red rag to uh to a ball i'm not not going to let it entirely lie but i mean you're absolutely right this is this is the the, the great age of, of of occultism uh spiritualism um uh there are people like carl duprel james did you have someone on talking about can you did, did have some yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah we we re- we republished his first volume there we go. That's right. Um, so, well, we, and you've got him then saying, "Well, Kant would have been a spirit, or Kant is a spiritualist," and 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 so on. So we've got all that going on. I think I think I'm also right in saying that uh, that, that Nietzsche on one occasion attended a séance as well. So, goodness knows what he made of uh, made of that. Um, so th- there certainly is that aspect of um, you know putting it back in its in its historical context. And I think one of the things that I appreciate most about your work, uh, Aaron, is that you've um, is, is that you you do look at it in its uh, intellectual historical context. And I think that 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 is uh, really important and one of the ways that one's going to get something valuable out of Steiner if one if one does that. At the same time, though, I, I keep on thinking since we've talked about occultism and spiritualism and um, sort of inner truths and my truth and so on, of that that great passage in the, the, from the same essay that I was talking about, where Heinrich talks about the objectivity, the gegenständliches Denken. I think there's a great passage with uh, where Goethe says uh, this. He says, "I must admit that I've been long suspicious of the great and important sounding task." Know thyself. Okay, so there we are, the Delphagorical psalm. Goethe says, This has always seemed to me a deception practiced by a secret order of priests who wish to confuse humanity with impossible demands, to divert attention from activity in the outer world to some false inner speculation. 
and that 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 what seems to me, I think that's what he'd want. That's what Goethe would say to Steiner as well: is is to say, look, all, you know, this, this activity in the outer world. Okay, you're building a Goetheanum, burns down, you build another one. You've got houses, you've got uh, you know your, your banks and all that. But but that's still not quite as Gegenstandish as objective as uh, as, as Goethe would uh, would like it to be because of this false inner speculation. I mean, that's really uncompromising. It seems to me on Goethe's part. That's the bit where he sounds to me most like like Nietzsche, or as a as as, as a forerunner of Nietzsche. And then just to pick up this point, I wanted to say as well that um, we've got this very peculiar thing with Nietzsche that on the one hand um, there he is um, radically anti-Numenist, radically anti-Kantian, and so on, and yet not divide not not devoid of his own mystical moments himself. But thinking, for example, of the way that he describes um, in Etse Homo the composition of Zarathustra, that great passage where he says, does anybody have any concept of what inspiration's like? Well, I'm going to tell you. Um, and then, then follows this, this extraordinary description of what looks very much like, what sounds very much like a, a, a mystical experience that he, uh, that he talks about. So um, uh, Nietzsche is not a kind of um, you know, a, a limited materialist. I think if he's a materialist, then, then one could say he's a vitalist materialist as well. And that opens up this opportunity for an experiential dimension, which is absolutely central to what he's saying in, in Etsy Homer about Zarathustra. I mean, that's his version of saying it's my truth. He's saying, thus big Zarathustra is my truth. This is how it, uh, this is how it came to me. So it, it's a peculiar kind of um, aspect of Nietzsche that, and, and maybe what also then makes him congenial to, uh, to people on the theological side, that there is just that little bit of room left open for uh, uh, a, a mystical understanding of what he's saying as, as well. That said, I'd want to put some kind of limitations uh, on it, and I get worried when I uh, when I read Steiner on Nietzsche, and he talks about I've, I've got it here the German edition. He talks about uh, Nietzsche beginning with um, Geist unschauen in a mythical form, spiritual unschauen in a mythical form. Okay, right. He goes on Apollo and Dionysus were Geistgestalten, spiritual forms which he experienced. And then he goes on, and I'm not so certain about that. I'm not so certain that when, when Nietzsche talks about Apollo and, and Dionysus in The Birth of Tragedy, which is the key work for him, setting up his system, his coming to terms with Schopenhauer, and so on, he says, well, you know, I'm going to use Apollo and Dionysus, and, and you can describe them as God, and you can describe them as gods, but I'm going to describe them as triba, as drives, as formal drive, this is where he's very, very close to Schiller. So under the idea of a formal drive and a, and, and a, and a material drive and a ludic drive, a synthesis which comes out um, uh, between the two of those drives. And it seems to me that that idea of, of you know, Apollo and Dionysus are drives and an, an occultistic reading, a spiritual reading, a numeral reading, a geist unshined reading seems to me to be a little bit of a distortion of what makes that text so important and significant for us even today. Yeah, if I could uh, pick up on that, I think this is actually related to sort of one of the questions we talked about, too, about like, how does Steiner read Nietzsche's work? How does Steiner see his work in relation to Nietzsche's work? And I had several passages that I, I picked out here, which you just touched on a little bit. I think why he's saying that, um, I don't know if I'll read them all, but just for an example, he gives, um, this is in his Riddles of Philosophy book. He talks about how, um, and this seemed to me is also like, 
you know, Steiner is appropriating all these things for sure. Like he's making Goethe be like him, what he's doing. I think this is also true. I think he's also doing this with Nietzsche in a certain sense. Is he doing this for validation? Is he doing it just because he likes these guys so much? I don't know. Maybe it's some of both or something. But um, for in Nietzsche's case, he is why what he says in relation to the the quote you just said there. He says that Nietzsche had to live out and experience the ideas and concepts of his time in an in intensely personal and subjective way. So in this quote here, he goes on to say things that um, this is his this is the Steiner uh, <laughs> reading of this that these concepts were forced on him by Wagner. He felt later in life, um, and then he had to like free himself from these. Um, these sort of mythological uh, ideas. But he says that, um, maybe I'll just read just a little bit of this so it's a better job than I can do explaining it. He says, um, Nietzsche is confronted with the world conceptions of the second half of the 19th century, and it becomes his destiny to experience personally all the delight, but also all the sorrows that this world conception can cause if they affect the human soul, not only theoretically, but with his entire individuality at stake. Nietzsche's philosophical life developed in such a way that the representative world conceptions of modern times would completely take hold of him, forcing him to work, forcing him to work himself through his own solutions in the most personal uh, experiences of life. Others think philosophy. Nietzsche had to live philosophy. For this reason, Nietzsche becomes more and more a poet as he presents his picture of world and life. Um, it is also for this reason that a reader who cannot agree with Nietzsche's presentation insofar as his philosophy is concerned can still admire it because of its political power, uh, end quote there. So two points about that. There are other passages where he talks about this, two things. That There's one where he says that Nietzsche is not fully in his body. This is, we're now getting into the occultism uh, stuff a little bit. I have to, we can't uh, avoid it and actually talk about this. So Nietzsche never fully incarnated, sort of hovers outside of his body, can't uh, get into his body. This is one thing he says about Nietzsche in several places. The other thing is that, he, in a certain sense, he seems to be saying something like he embodied the zeitgeist of the second half of the 19th century, and meaning that he didn't, couldn't, he wasn't just thinking um, these philosophical concepts, but he had to experience them, like see them, basically, in a certain sense, I think is maybe the, the passage you were uh, pointing out there, that even with these mythological sort of archetypes, that he had a, some kind of, this is like mystical again sounding, some kind of like experience of these things, with living them personally in his life. So there's these two, um, there's these two, um, yeah, I don't know what we would say, attributes, qualities of Nietzsche. That's his own reading of it. Uh, but of course, you're not going to find anybody else saying that about Nietzsche. So what is this? this is, you can almost say this is like a psychological, <laughs> psychological, spiritual kind of interpretation, his own, of uh, of Nietzsche. And there's sort of more in that direction. He goes on later after this, the whole theosophy, taking in theosophy, this is where he's talking this way much more. And I don't know what you make of that, but I think that that is what you were picking up on. He expands on this even more when he's saying, like, what does this mean that he's seeing these um, these sort of uh, myth mythos, these mythological forms? And, and the final point is, I describe Steiner basically the way that Steiner just described Nietzsche. <laughs> you know, that there's a... So it's interesting that... Um, uh, what is going on here? I mean, that's kind of the way that, like, I do think in some way Steiner thought he was doing that, and it's a bit blurry now to really make sense of it for a variety of reasons because of, of his followers, because of the the how big the movement got, because of the translation and editing issues, which have been a whole mess, because he just, uh, he gave lectures all over the place and they were taken in shorthand by a stenographer, and apparently they can no longer read some of this because they've forgotten how. Um, 
after, during World War II, many things were purged and altered to make him seem more Aryan and so on. So that could also probably be why the whole thing is a bit uh, difficult to penetrate of uh, what exactly he was all about and why things seem so contradictory. But for me, uh, that's kind of the way I even, what he said about Nietzsche is what I'm thinking about Steiner, that um, he's sort of embodying in this visionary, poetic way. I think he thinks he's doing that. And I don't know if he would agree with Nietzsche if he's coming to some kind of poetic creation of values. But Steiner definitely thinks that's what he's doing with his anthroposophy and says this all the time that, you know, the new man or the new thinker, philosopher is an artist in poetry. And so therefore, you're it's like an artistic thinking, something like that. And he claims that this is what uh, he claims this for Nietzsche and for Goethe. This is also convenient. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 I certainly agree with you that uh, one could describe Steiner um as as a, as a kind of uh, seismograph of the of the time, and in, in fact, that's what I would see as as being uh, one of the reasons why whatever whatever academia thinks that uh, that Rudolf Steiner is, is is an important figure, um, because he does he does reflect on, throw light on uh, uh, issues at his time, and, and and perhaps also on our own time as a result. Um, so I'm entirely entirely open with that. Um, open to that, and um, uh, I think that, for example, the the, the attention that, that Steiner pays to um, uh, not so much Christianity, but uh, but the pagan mysteries is very is very revealing for the way that that, that Nietzsche writes about uh, the pagan mysteries as well. Again, um, uh, uh, strange to think of uh, Nietzsche, the great atheist, um, actually being very interested in uh, in in, pa- in pagan religion, or, or at any rate using it as a, a, a as an argumentational motif uh, in the in, in the Antichrist. Um, and, and equally, the uh, the subjective nature of interpretation. Well, I think you're right. Every interpretation is going to have a degree of subjectivity about it. Um, and if we have Derrida's version of Nietzsche, and if we have Foucault's version of Nietzsche, and Baudrillard's, and, and you know, the whole post-structuralist uh, uh, views of Nietzsche, well, um, which are themselves highly subjective, and indeed would, would would in some cases revel in their in their subjectivity and this this playful interpretation and and the semiotics spread across the room as you as you do your interpretation so again it's all right for them um, maybe because they're French uh, but not for but not for Steiner and that seems that seems a little un, a little unfair um, and, and, and I think the uh, that's that's really what Gottfried Ben was trying to articulate in a way about the significance of, of Nietzsche there's this great passage where uh, where Gottfried Ben says uh, Nietzsche you know is the most important thinker of, of our time um, because he embodied because he experienced all of these issues and and, and confrontations, and I think that's the I think I'd, I I think I'd take Gottfried Ben's uh, uh, word for it there. Um, at the same time, I'm a little shy about the sort of you know Nietzsche as uh, as lone hero, uh, because that seems that that seems to be a, a different kind of subjectivity. There seems to be the danger is that Nietzsche then becomes a kind of, you know, um, uh, a screen onto which one's own preoccupations can become can become projected, um, and and that's legitimate up to the point where one says no, but that is actually what Nietzsche is doing, and there you'd want to say, well, no, it isn't. That that's what people are projecting onto uh, on, onto Nietzsche, and I suppose it's then it's it's really just a simple point about you know of you know intellectual honesty in saying, well, is that is that really Nietzsche or is that that Steiner's appropriation yeah yeah absolutely and I, and I think this brings us to a crucial point and, and part of this to be fair could be obscured because of the history that i just mentioned about his work and he, but 
this is something that doesn't happen with Steiner. He then is not, and he tries to get a job in Jena uh, after he finishes his dissertation and so forth in the philosophy department and doesn't work out. And this is when the occultism really kicks in, you know, after he has a kind of moment of darkness. But, and then he's outside of the academy, you know. So I think this is one of the issues here that if one, one, one in the academy has a bit more, it's, perhaps transparency or at least does it in a different way that's more congenial with colleagues and this is the method this is the training we do it this way even if we're doing it like the french and you know being very subjective whereas here's a person who uh leaves the academy is doing all this in the public realm and um has lots of followers and yeah and basically is just making claims and again this is a bit hard to to know in a, any real concrete way because of as i mentioned and of course you can find what's the fun thing about trying to even study steiner is you can find endless uh contradictions him saying one thing and saying the opposite some of that's him some of that is half the things we have or notes you know from people in lectures so some of that is just i don't know error but some of it maybe yeah he's he's making these uh contradictory statements based on maybe his audience or based on what you know whatever uh, but it doesn't uh, ever really, I think this is also part of the why, especially academics have a problem with this. It doesn't reach that level of maybe transparency or you know, sort of acknowledging uh, my reading, you know, on it. At the same time, it's interesting, like coming from, you know, I went to the university in California, like because of this sort of relevant, relevant um, relativism and postmodernism, uh mm, deep uh history and some people are like don't want people to do that and like are looking for some kind of you know truth again but of course this is then we get into the whole danger about authoritarianism and and blah 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 but it it is interesting that um this tension i guess is all i'm bringing out here maybe we can see this tension in steiner uh, a little bit as well i mean what did people want they wanted answers (laughs) and he did have answers of a kind about certain things I mean, people would come to him. This is how a lot of this got started is people would say, come show us how to do a new liturgy. We're a bunch of theologians. And so he just makes something, you know, he didn't make it up. He he does something <laughs> and then gives it to him that people come and say, we want new forms of agriculture because of these horrible conditions and what's going on in, uh, in the East and Poland. And so he goes to Poland and he gives a whole lecture about this occult agriculture. He does the same thing with the school uh, in Stuttgart and the this, this cigarette factory and the factory workers and can't uh, want a different kind of education for their kids. Um, so it's a tension here, I think, about it. It also brings in the idea of ac- academia. Is it, you know, is the point to just sort of go find these practical things or should we, you know, is it to step back and to acknowledge? I don't know. You know what I mean? I don't have the answer. This is what I basically have to, the position I have to take as a scholar, I don't have the answer. Don't look to me for any answers. <laughs> Maybe it's being extreme, but just to make my point there, you know. Well, no, I, th- I think I think that's a very fair point, and um, and if I may say so, a very a very Nietzschean one in many ways, because it it, it seems to me that that's what Nietzsche feels as someone who who goes, you know, is is absolutely going the academic route and absolutely you know going the early tenure route and and so on, and he's doing it all. He's doing the publications. He's 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 editing uh, the philosophical uh, the, the sorry the philological journals and 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 so on. Um, and, and then there's this great sense of, of crisis of really, well, what is this all about? You know, just just producing material for the ref and rankings and ratings and all the rest of it. And so and so he's able to opt out of it in 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 some way. Well, in a very concrete way, because his pension arrangements allow him to go and 
retire after 10 years and he can wander around Europe. Um, uh, uh, very nice if you can do it. And I wonder if there is something about uh, about Steiner which does um, illustrate this this dilemma, which is, you know, uh, the need for a discipline of thought, and, and that's what you find within the academy, but, but also the problem of that discipline of thought turning into something which is really essentially stultifying and, and deadening um, uh, and, and, and killing what it's, uh, what it's examining. Uh, and that forces people out of the academy, where if then anything goes. And, you know, the whole question is, how does one find, how, how does one found discursive institutions which allow for uh, rigorous debate and discussion, but don't in the end kill off what they're, what they're doing? And I wonder in some ways if a figure, if a figure like, like, like Jung, not everybody's favourite, I know, and certainly not within the academy. But if, but if Jung is, is is the best example of someone who um, uh, can can solve that that dilemma through the founding of institutions, the psychological club. I know the Jung Institute wasn't something that he necessarily wanted founded, but but there was this sense that there was going to be collective discussion. And yet, so on, on in the in the case of Jung, we have if if you want all your deeply spiritual stuff, boy, has he got it there in the Red Book, but. But he keeps the red book out of sight. Okay, so he does all that stuff, but that's then well for strategic reasons or for very good reasons um, uh, in, in terms of wanting to set up a, a, a new movement, a new organisation um, called analytical psychology. You don't want to bang on about that stuff too much. Instead, you want to produce some papers and get going on your collected works and, and so on. But it, it actually seems to me to provide a, a more satisfying um, synthesis. Then some, then some are like uh, that, that Steiner, Steiner does um, in, in terms of the way that so often I find secondary uh, literature on, on Steiner simply repeats what Steiner says and doesn't engage with it. I'm, I'm really not getting anywhere with this. It's just, it's just repeating what it said, and it's presented to me not as an argument, but as something which is to be assented to or, or to believe. And that, 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 seems to me, uh, that seems to me problematic. Having said that, perhaps the way out is this. What was it that really helped revolutionize Nietzsche scholarship and our more general understanding of Nietzsche, it was the philological edition that was done by Colli and Montinari, the two Italian professors who get the Gesamte Werke uh, going, uh, get the Kritische Gesamtausgabe going of, uh, of Nietzsche, and who give us the authentic Nietzsche texts, um, probably transcribed in, in the proper order and all the editorial work done, all the expansionary work that, that's done. And this enables you to have a secure, as secure a possible discussion, it seems to me, of what Nietzsche is about on the basis of the text, because you've got them in, in the most authentic as possible form. And as you touched upon, Aaron, that's not there with Steiner, is it? We, we, we don't have that clarity. And that seems to me, until that is philologically sorted out, that's always going to bedevil in some way, not simply his reception in, in, in academia, but, but more importantly, serious engagement with his, with his thought, because we have this huge difficulty of knowing what was said, where and when. Yes, I, absolutely. I guess I could bring in one thing to also be fair about this. That I, I definitely agree with what you said there, and it has actually started a little bit. So they have, but this has also come with a whole host of issues, which um, and debates and so on. But they have begun this process of trying to produce some kind of Kritische Ausgabe of Steiner's work. I think they have like five volumes now, and it's from. Um, Brigham Young University in, uh, I don't know if you've heard, if you've heard about it, but it's in, uh, in the United States. And yeah, so they produced 
a few a few things and it's it's excellent i use them in my dissertation and absolutely that's the kind of thing that's needed i think unfortunately a lot of it there's a certain segment of it which is lost though for a variety of reasons um i mean a lot of it was also destroyed and in like like here's an example like when i go to the goethe schiller archive I have to sign things. I have to, you know, it's very proper. Everything is beautiful. I wear some gloves. Okay. But if I go to the Steiner archive, it's not like this. I mean, the things are just around like they, they're, they're got, it's gotten better and better, but it doesn't have like state sponsorship to like, you know, keep everything in order. So, and, and also is historically not everything was collected. You know, he didn't really write books. You know, I guess it's still true of Nietzsche that he was just writing these things, little papers or <laughs> whatever, but so I, I agree that I think it started and I'm very happy about it that there's a there's now a journal called Science Studies, uh, Steiner Studies. There's, I think, five volumes of these early work of Steiner. Um, and that, yeah, I think it is going to take some more time. This is also why I wanted to do uh, it the way I did is to sort of like give other uh, other perspectives, you know, other details of Steiner's life and so forth, particularly of him into this academic environment I'm doing in religious studies. I realize, which is also a little bit different than taking a philosophical approach uh, to Steiner, but um, but I agree that that's the next step, and I think it has started. But of course, you know, uh, anthroposophy still exists as quite strongly as a movement. So there's um, been interesting back and forth between them and these critical editions and so forth. I think mostly it's it's ironed itself out, but of course it it also is um, it's another area of tension, you know, especially coming from religious studies. It's like religious studies we are supposed to at least now, like the way I was trained, you have to kind of, you don't want to influence the religion <laughs> if you can, you know, whatever that you're studying, whatever it is you're studying for that matter. So, mm, so there's some tension there too. Well, I guess, I guess one question to sort of wrap up in a way would be where to begin. I mean, of course, if, if, if you want to, if you want to look at the overlap between Steiner and Nietzsche in text, I guess the clearest example would be Steiner's text on Nietzsche. Um, so I think it's Fighter, Fighter for Freedom, I think is the title. So that's the clear Steiner view. But I mean, Paul, is there is there m- much to go to from the Nietzschean perspective of Steiner's thought on Nietzsche or even a Nietzschean perspective on Steiner? Uh, no, I think that uh, you've pointed people in exactly the right direction. There is um, uh, the the little paperback. Uh, if, if if you want if you want to get it in, in its original German form, like like all these things, much better much better in the original German. Of course, I would say that. Uh, but it collects all all, all of the writings from 1895. Um, uh, uh, Nietzsche, the uh, the the fighter uh, fighter against his time. Um, but it also contains uh, the philosophy of Nietzsche as a psychopathological problem. Um, essay of 1900. And, and of course, that's interesting because that reminds me a little bit of what, what Klugers does when he writes about the psychological achievements of, uh, of, of, of Nietzsche. So, um, uh, that's, that's, uh, a, a maybe slightly different take and, and one which I think is actually quite, quite refreshing in some, uh, in, in, in some ways. Um, so I, that, I think if people go to, to Steiner on Nietzsche themselves, they're probably going to find it, uh, that that's the, uh, that's the source to that's the source to go to, um, uh, or, or look at his writings on uh, on Goethe and uh, and and, and science. Um, but really, it's then when one looks at things like can you gain knowledge of higher worlds? That's where I think I think most people are going to find that they have difficulties. But maybe that's just me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, is there anything either would like to add in that you 
that you feel is uh, you know key for the relationship that between Schneider and each other we've missed. Yeah, I have one final question that we didn't get to, just to see what is said. Because one of the things that you and I had mentioned, James, was this mm. idea of like about Nietzsche and Christianity. You know, <laughs> of course, we then did a talk on Steiner and Christianity, uh, his ver- his vision of Christianity, his version of it, his Christology. And so I was in preparation for this. I was trying to look a little bit in Steiner for some kind of points of a. Uh, agreement or, or something between his Christianity and what and what Nietzsche had because I, I think that uh, uh, there is more to something like the Antichrist than a very just reading the title and having a reaction you know or something like that but for the most part what I found in Steiner is that he does take he does feel that at those books at the end of his life he goes in this and like you know literally goes in this um, anti-christian direction. I mean, frankly, he says that he sort of became over possessed by anti-Christian forces that were writing through him, you know? <laughs> so, so at that point, they're definitely splitting ways, you know, because Steiner is doing much more Christian occultist stuff, you know, towards the end of his life and just developing it. So I guess my question was, is that, do you think that that's accurate, especially maybe for Paul too, because I know you just did a new version of the Antichrist. I mean, is the Antichrist uh, the title and that's how we should see it in respect to Christianity? A little bit like maybe Steiner did, or is there is there something deeper there? Um, not pro Christianity, if you know what I mean, but but trying to maybe even again like Steiner, trying to open the way for new Christianity, new new ideas about Christianity, something like that. Well, no, uh, uh, thank you for that. I think that um, uh, it, it would be hard pressed to say that uh, that Nietzsche is is hoping to to, to found a new form of Christianity, but. But but I think it's I think it's significant and, and, and a great contrast with with Steiner and um, after what you've just been been saying there, uh, it, it, which is that Nietzsche has nothing critical to say about Christ himself, um, and and it all turns on uh, St Paul, um, who twists the gospel, who turns the who, who turns it into this this gospel of hatred, um, and and entirely misses the the, the, the point. Of, uh, of of what Christ Himself is is about, and then the Church builds on Paul, and 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 it all goes downhill from uh, fr- from there. So so it it's a, a very nuanced um, a critique of, of of Christianity. I mean, there's some there's some uh, pretty heavy heavy duty rhetoric that uh, that Nietzsche fires off in in the course of the book, and I think that makes it uh, difficult for its reception to uh, today. But but round the figure of Christ, uh, uh, Nietzsche is um, Almost awesomely respectful, one might say. That doesn't seem to be the case with uh, with Steiner. Once he gets his hand on the material and wants to start, you know, producing new new gospels and, and and new mystery dramas and and so on. And I guess that would be one of the differences that I that I would say that comes out most strongly for me uh, between these two thinkers, whose overlapping parts I think we have nevertheless been able to uh, been able to to explore. I hope, and 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 that is. Um, Steiner comes up with his own form of um, uh, um, acting, dancing, uh, own form, own form of drama, rhythmics, and, and so on, um, and, and puts on um, these large plays. Tries to stage Goethe's Faust, of course, interestingly, uh, in, its, in its entirety. One of the few places where it's ever been, it's ever been done. But, but Nietzsche doesn't do that. Nietzsche writes Zarathustra, but we're not then expected to sort of you know, dress up as a lion or act out these things in some, in some way. Um, it remains fundamentally con- conceptual. And at the end of the day, 
uh, in Etsy Homo, he says, one of these days, he says, what I hope they'll do is to found for the study of my Zarathustra an academic chair. <laughs> there's there's still something he hasn't quite escaped academia in some in some ways. There's still some sort of you know um, uh, lingering want, uh, lingering desire to uh, to remain within academic circles in some way. Whereas where Steiner has um, completely escaped from them, but but maybe to the detriment in terms of the way that he articulates his own thought. I don't know. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Just maybe the final comment on that is yeah. So we've uh, we've shown they definitely have overlap, but. We've shown the overlap and the differences, which I think was the point, right? I mean, no one came saying we're going to conflate these two, but I think they have interesting resonances and differences that are worth noting, right? Something yeah, like that. I mean, there, was, there was one quotation that I'm fond of from Nietzsche in The Will to Power right near the end. He says that the leveling of European man needs to be accelerated. We can't just sit here. So I think the similarities between the two is that both of them at that point in time, noticing something, some cultural either a stagnation along with the new technology which is turning everyone machinic moving towards the quantified along with the in you know the 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 death of god which has been brought about by the enlightenment there is this like okay if we stop here this is not a good place to stop so nietzsche is sort of saying the nihilism and saying well if you're going to have nihilism we need to we just need to push it like where's that you know we need to level european man whereas i guess with steiner he's saying well you know, let's accelerate it in the other direction and try reveal everything from the above and try break. They're both breaking things, basically. None of them are saying, you know, I think it's interesting, Paul, you said to me about how uh, in our chat in the Antichrist, Nietzsche, because he, he's got that finitude or finiteness of his life always in front of him, he's almost working in a panic throughout all these styles to be like, I just need to get this out. And I always, I also get that impression with Steiner of, both of them, I think, have uh, imbued the culture within them, the idea that if we stop, the, the, this could be really to our detriment. We really need to push through right now. And both of you see that in both of them, that they just work almost like in a, in a mania. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, and I think I think what you've what you've you put your finger on there, James, is this idea of of thought as actually being something which is uh, which they are absolutely passionate about, and this this driving passion um, is so important for them, and that's what they, that's what they didn't find in various ways in the uh, in the academy, and maybe it's still a valid a valid critique, which is which is that for all the emphasis that's on assessment and rating, that if you don't have that passion, then in fact you're not really doing your job properly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that seems like a good place to finish up uh so thanks to you both <laughs> thank you james and thanks everyone thank you